This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, advancing women's equality and representation in American politics and in the field of contemporary art. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, November 15th, The Washington Post brought together current and newly elected lawmakers, top political strategists, and experts to evaluate the midterm election results for female candidates, discuss differences in party performance, and look ahead to how women will help shape the policy agenda of the Trump administration, the 116th Congress, and in state capitals across the country. In this segment, Washington Post political columnist Karen Tumulty moderates a discussion with analysts and activists who explore what factors propelled women to run for office in 2018, discuss differences in party performance, and assess the ongoing gender disparity on Capitol Hill. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Karen Tumulty. I'm a columnist here at the Washington Post, and I want to Thank you all for joining us here on the first day of winter. I don't care what the... (laughs) (laughs) We have an amazing group of women up here, and we're going to try and sort of peel back what happened in this election season, both looking at the amazing number and diversity of women who were elected, but also looking a bit at women voters and the amount of, of activism that, that we saw this year. And so I think I would like to start with Kelly Dittmar of uh, the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University, because there's a half glass full and a half glass empty. As, as you point out, yeah. women are still only at 25% of the membership below. of mm-hmm. Congress, or under 25%, mm-hmm. and yet I think, judging from some statistics that you sent out today, the answer may be out there, which is the extraordinary number of women who got elected to state legislatures. All right. Could you talk about both of those? Sure. So this has been the role of the Center for American Women in Politics throughout this election cycle, is to be a little bit of a wet blanket. Um, But we do that to provide important context for what happened this year. Um, And that matters not just because we want to rain on a parade, but because we want the parade to continue of electing more women. And so we saw record numbers of women running for office this year, record numbers of women winning. Um, We saw increased diversity. So we'll talk about for example, of the women in Congress, um, about 47% right now of the Democratic women in the next Congress will be women of color. Um, So you have huge uh, successes when it comes to increasing the number of women and diversifying the women in office. But as Karen noted, women will still be less than a quarter of all of the members of Congress. Uh, They will be less than a third of state level uh, legislators. So we're up to about 27% right now um, among state legislative office. 44% in Nevada. 
Yes, yes. 44% yes. of Nevada. Nevada is very happy. Um, and, and a third of about our statewide elected officials. So all of these are gains, and we want to celebrate those. But we also want to remember that the work doesn't stop in one single year. And there's another important caveat that I'm sure we'll talk about on the panel, which is that the story of the wave or the success of women or the year of the women was not a story for Republican women. So the number of Republican women in Congress will go down by at least six, if not 10. Uh, when we talk about the House, we were starting at 23 already. We were starting at a very low number of Republican women in Congress. And so we can't tell the story of this year without pointing that out. Uh, one thing we always say at the center is we're never going to get to parity. If parity is the goal, if it's to see a, a Congress that represents the fullness of the population, that includes Republican women. And that means we have to do some work. I'm sure folks on the panel will have some ideas on how you do that. Last thing I'll say is you don't measure success just in terms of, of the numbers. And so I hope we'll also talk about the ways in which women not only ran in record numbers, but disrupted the sort of rules of the game of how you run and why you run for office. And that bodes really well for that pipeline that you're talking about in the future. Well, that's a great transition to Sarah Chamberlain um, the of the Republican Mainstream Partnership, Main Street Partnership. Sorry about that. Right. Uh, you, the incoming freshman class, uh, there is only one woman Republican in it. You deserve some credit for getting her elected with your with the uh, the activism that, that you were doing. But so, like, what's the deal with Republicans? So the first problem is, so Kara Miller, West Virginia, is the only female Republican coming. I helped her through the primary, then we helped her in the general. Um, part of the problem we had is um, the women running in primaries didn't get the funding from the GOP side. I had a great woman in Tennessee. Uh, Main Street um, is the only organization that funded her in the primary. Was that she, Ashley Yes, Nichols? Ashley Nichols. Mm -hmm. An amazing candidate. biography that if amazing. she had been running in a Democratic primary, she, she would have won. just say combat veteran. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what happened to her is um, it's not an old boys club in the GOP. They, they just didn't pay attention to her. Um, and I was focusing on another race, to be honest, a primary with uh, Danny Donovan and former Congressman Michael Grimm. And then when I realized nobody was helping her, we jumped in quickly. It was a little too late to save her. She is not going to be gone, though. She will be back, and she is going to be a rising star within the GOP at some point. Um, so that's kind of what happened. We didn't fund them early. We didn't have enough of them. Um, the Republican Main Street Partnership, I'm the only woman in the country that runs an organization of this size on the GOP side, and we intend to focus on this for the next two years because my members now run the Senatorial Committee and the NRCC. Um, so we are going to be out hard focusing on trying to lift the number of women and add more GOP women. So, Glinda, you're a co-founder of Higher Heights. Uh, the extraordinary thing, too, is you look at the photograph of the freshman class, and it almost looks like America. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about what were the factors that brought so many women, so much diversity among these women running for office? We've got you know, several states that are elected their first African-American members to the House. We have the first Muslim-American women to, elected to the House, the first Native American women, which I was just astonished mm -hmm. that that hadn't happened before. 
What was going on this year? Well, I think what was going on this year is it's the 50th anniversary of Shirley Chisholm's run and election to Congress, catapulting her to be the first black woman to yeah. serve in that body. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's something about a full circle moment. It's taken 50 years and, you know, women of color are still severely underrepresented in, in, uh, on the Hill. But this year, you know, in the spirit of Shirley Chisholm, she once said, if there's not a seat at the table, bring your folding chair. And I think the women in this cycle said, I'm not going to say, you know, scooch over and bring my folding chair. They actually claimed their seats, right? It wasn't, they weren't waiting for their turn. Um, the work that we, Higher Heights partners with the Center for American Women in Politics in um, our research, the, the status of black women in American politics. We compile um, research, existing research, and one of the pieces of the research is that women are not encouraged to run for office, and women of color are actually actively discouraged to run for office. Um, and then once they're discouraged from running for office, when they do step off the sidelines, they are underfunded. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes, mm -hmm. um, traditional institutions in our parties, both Republican and Democrats, then don't invest and invest early. So I think the women of color, and particularly the black women that we've been following, are now showing that the women that ran and won this cycle and the women that ran and lost the cycle have now changed the definition of what a viable candidate That's is. Right. Um, in that you also can't just wait for an open seat, that if you feel it's your time and that you have a vision and that you can pull together a campaign, that you can have these enormous wins in primaries and then go on and have a, a, you know, major wins in the general election. And before we go any further, I wanted to invite all of you, if you have any questions for our amazing panel, please uh, tweet them to us using the hashtag postlive. Um, and we would love to, to have some of your questions as well. So Sayu Bhagwani, this was also your, your organization, uh, the, your organization, New American Leaders, which is sort of a play on words there, a double meaning, mm -hmm. uh, works a lot with first and second generation Americans, uh, getting them into politics. But given the degree to which immigration and immigrants uh, were sort of in particular, you know, in this election that, you know, turned into the other by this president. What was it like trying to recruit candidates and what was the environment like for them when they when they decided to take that big leap? Well, I will say that after 2016, our application numbers doubled after the 2016 elections. And I think that was a result of people feeling like the environment was going to get worse and that they wanted to be in positions of power to help determine the policy, that even if at the federal level we were going to see anti-immigrant policy and anti-immigrant rhetoric, that we could have local and state leaders who were supporting our communities. And so it was remarkable the number of first and second generation Americans who were running for office this year, um, really record numbers, about 100 of them ran for Congress in the general, I'm sorry, in the primaries. And then we've seen, of course, people like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, who are first and second generation immigrants getting elected. Uh, I think that the other piece of this was that we, it became very clear that we 
that commu our communities needed something to engage around, something that uh, they had a reason to vote uh, in a way that was much more powerful than ever before because our communities and our community's safety and health and security are at stake. And so, we, you know, we talk about these diverse candidates, but it wasn't just that they were women and that they were women of color, but that they were running the types of campaigns that expanded the electorate, that knocked on the doors of people who had never heard from incumbents or from party leaders, frankly. And then they were talking to them in ways that the voters could connect to. And what I think voters showed up for was a type of candidate who they felt would be their advocate in a way that they hadn't felt, they don't feel about their existing leadership. And did you see as, as the news cycle went along this year, whether it was the, you know, parents being separated from their babies at the border last spring, or whether it was the president coming out and talking incessantly about the caravan toward the end, with your candidates, did this make them sort of more inspired to run, or did this kind of kind of scare people? Um, it definitely did scare people. I think that you know by the time the family separation was occurring, at least in the kind of uh, sort of more um, scaled up and public way in June of this year, many people had already declared their candidacies. But I, what I would say is that people, most people who ran and won their elections didn't run on their immigrant experience. They just didn't run away from it. They stood up for who they are and for the communities that they represented. And you asked earlier about the, about the climate. And I will tell you, like we have a alumna who got elected to the Arizona State House uh, in, in her August primary and then in her general. And last week she was served papers uh, to prove that she was a citizen. Wow. So here's a woman who is Mexican-American, Raquel Teran, elected to the Arizona State House, uh, and after her election was served papers. And so, you know, it's easy to dismiss this as part of a, a bogus claim that's part of the anti-immigrant climate that many of us are experiencing, but actually it requires a legitimate response in the courts and takes away, uh, it both diminishes our sense of self and our sense of belonging, and also really takes away valuable time and energy that you could be using to, to serve your constituents. And so I do think that those things are happening, but I think that people are fighting back. Uh, and let's not forget that this environment is not new for many people. Like, we are more publicly aware of it, but many of us have experienced this at our local levels, and we've learned how to stand up for ourselves, and now we have uh, more of the American public has our back, so to speak. So... Morgan Murtaugh, as Barbara Lee mentioned uh, at the beginning, that the rules of arithmetic are that more people are going to lose elections than win. Mm -hmm. You were the youngest woman congressional candidate in the country, running in, in a district in San Diego. Uh, I think you were born, what, three months before Bill Clinton was elected? Yeah, about, about I have that. shoes older than you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> could you talk a little bit about what made you decide to jump into this race as a Republican in a year that wasn't going to be great for Republicans and really wasn't going to be great for Republicans in California? What inspired you to run and what now? Honestly, the one thing that 
that got me to run this this young was the hate and the vitriol coming from both sides of our leadership that is currently driving a toxic wedge into our society and the fact that people can't seem to have a conversation anymore. People talk to me I, when I was campaigning. I never told people my party unless they ask. I didn't hide from it. You Google me, find out right away I'm a Republican. But um, the one thing that I just steered clear from was the partisan rhetoric talk, talking about being a Republican and just having conversations on the issues. And the fact that a lot of people agree on both sides, we have the same goals. We just have different ideas on how to get there, but we've kind of lost that in politics today. And so that's really what, what drove me to run right now was I, I want to be a positive voice. And I was a very moderate and centrist voice in my election, which is why I didn't do as well in this hyperpartisan climate. But I told people that I would rather lose with the dignity of knowing that I'm changing the hearts and minds of people and bringing people together than win and further this toxic divide in our country. So that was one thing that I really wanted to drive home in my candidacy and I hope to continue to drive home. How? What are you going to do? You going to run again? I, I will run again. I don't know about right away in two years, but I am actually going to start a nonprofit organization. I'm working with someone else who ran for office in San Diego for a local office. And right now we don't we don't pay a lot of attention to local politics anymore. And local politics is where the heart of everything is. So what we wanted to do was provide local candidates with Digi low cost digital consulting because digital is the future and to help candidates afford that and give them that platform that they need. So let's talk a little bit about women voters. Um, the gender gap was significantly wider this time around, wasn't it, than it was in the last couple of midterms? It was wider, although it was 12 points in the national exit poll for the House and the presidential was 11. So th there's a little bit of right inflation going on in the conversation that it somehow was so much bigger. Okay. But that's big because that was a high point in the presidential, so a big gender gap. And what we saw was a, a continued shift, which I think is notable among the particular demographic that got a lot of attention, which was college-educated white women, right? You've heard suburban women, however you want to phrase it. College-educated white women, which is really the demographic that shifted from Romney to Clinton. And then the question this cycle was, would they continue to shift towards the Democratic Party or not? Would they come back to the Republican Party? And what you saw was a further shifting away. 59% of college-educated white women uh, voted for Democrats in the national exit poll. Um, of course, what that overlooks, as I'm sure uh, Glinda will know, is that Black women and women of color were always there, um, and they were reliable again in this cycle. Well, Sarah, you and I spoke election morning, and you were standing outside a polling place in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. What were you hearing from women? So I was in uh, Bucks County, which is a very suburban part of this country. The member of Congress, are, he did win um, by about three percentage points. But what I heard from the women is a, a mixed bag. Part of it was... We like the economics, we like the issues, we don't like the tweets. We joined with the First Lady and not liking all the President's tweets. And we don't care if, if the Congressman's name is Brian Fitzpatrick, if, if Fitzpatrick doesn't always vote with Trump or if he's a good guy and he's passing this legislation, we are sending a message. And I heard that over and over, um, which, which is a little bit disheartening. Um, and this was obviously before I knew that 
almost every one of my members in California was, is about to lose or has lost. Um, so that's a huge issue that, again, at Main Street, we're going to try to bring back. We are the, the organization that lives in these suburban districts. I actually do have uh, 62 members left in the House. So again, some of the rhetoric is the suburban districts are gone. Some of them are, um, but we, we still have a, a good majority of them left. And how do you get them back? <laughs> um, <laughs> no small test. Yeah, no. Um, we're going to try a couple different things. I'm going to start to travel the country or continue to travel the country talking to women, getting them to come to what's called the Women to Women Tour, and talking about the issues. I mean, I, I'm so tired, and I think the women up here can join me and the women in the audience. Every single issue is a women's issue. We have to start stop saying, well, that's a women's issue. They're all women's issues. And I have to start to educate the women, and the, the legislation has been passed. Pell Grants. Nobody knew we, the president signed Pell Grants um, extension into law just a few days before the election. So now you can get a Pell Grant in the summer if, if you're going to college. Um, right to try legislation, which may extend a person's life by using different types of treatments. There's all this legislation that's out there that's really attractive that it never really broke through all the rhetoric to, uh, to educate the people as to what we've done. So that's something we're going to start to do in force um, starting next year. And I'm going to go into these suburban districts that we still hold and, and talk to the women. So. But you mentioned issues, and, and mm -hmm. Mercy Schlapp was out here a minute ago saying, but we have such a great economic message for women. Um, our, yes, every issue is a woman's issue, but our polling here at the Washington Post suggests women's priorities this election yes. were very different from men. Right. Women were 14 points more likely to say that health care was one of their top mm -hmm. two priorities going into the mm -hmm. polls. Men were 10 points more likely to say that the economy was one of their priorities. When, I mean, my sense was that that Democratic candidates, and particularly women candidates, I was in Arizona the weekend before, really did stay on health care. Was that your... Yep, so some of our work through our um, Black Women Vote um, program this year is we convened what we call the National Night of Sisters, Sister Salon Conversations, actually going to talk to black women to hear what they had to say, and more importantly, having them organize their own networks. So the model was that we asked, you know, we were looking to do 100 salon conversations across this country, and you could decide as the host where it could be in your basement, in your living room, in your kitchen, at a nail salon, a hair salon, a church basement. And so we had 2,000 women on one given night um, you know, collectively have a conversation about what is the issue that is really driving them to the polls. So, I mean, the, 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 the narrative around black women is that we're reliable voters, reliable Democratic voters, and we're going to come out regardless. We are issue voters. And then you add on a candidate that inspires you, like a Stacey Abrams, um, that then fires up a black woman and she doesn't go to the polls alone. She brings her house, her block, her church, and her sorority. Um, so the notion is that when you invest in a black woman, it's not just one voter, it's one plus ten. Um, and for her, it is looking for a candidate that is going to hold the issues that are important to her. So, you know, from the this informal dialogues of having ten of your girlfriends to fifty of your girlfriends in your home was that the economy, health care, you know, black women are looking for economically stable, healthy, safe communities. Can I jump in there a second? So what we found with our exit polling is, yes, you know, the whole tweeting was uh, a little bit more than suburban women liked, 
but I would tell you health care was the number one issue, 100%. And what the Democrats did and did well to every one of my Republican members, whether they voted for the ACA or not, is um, pre-existing conditions. We got killed across the board with pre-existing conditions. And G the GOP as a whole, including Main Street, we didn't have a good response to that, and we tried to, to fix it. Like Brian Fitzpatrick, he didn't even vote for the bill, and he couldn't get out from under the pre-existing conditions issue either. So that really determined some of my seats. And one thing on that is that, that health care also was a motivator for women to run. Mm -hmm. So I think we don't want to overlook, there was a lot of conversation of like, well, these women just woke up after the march and they decided to run for office. Mm -hmm. Most of the women who were running, I'm sure Morgan can speak to this, were running on issues that they deeply cared about. For many of those women, health care was at least among them. So if you start to look at when women were explaining why they ran for office, a lot of women after the, the, the ACA vote and, and the attempts of this administration said, I can't stand by and see this progress pulled back and it motivated them to run in the first place. So Morgan, we have a question from Liz on Twitter. He says, can we have an honest conversation about increasing the number of Republican women candidates without addressing Republican policies, which include, you know, opposition to abortion, uh, family leave, uh, pay equity is is part of the challenge here for the republic when i came to washington 30 years ago most of the republican women in the house were pro-choice mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um do you think the the party's going to be able to appeal and and get this kind of pipeline of women candidates as long as it holds the, the issue positions that it does I think it depends on the candidate. There's a lot, there's one thing that a lot of people don't realize is you're never going to find a candidate who 100% agrees with you on 100% of the issues, and you're never going to find a candidate that agrees 100% with their party platform on 100% of the issues. People are very diverse, and they have different opinions on different issues. And I think that until we separate the partisan rhetoric from the candidate running, then we're going to continue to have this putting people into boxes. I ran on very socially moderate and a very fiscally conservative platform where I am 100% for gay marriage. I, I mean, the minute that the government got involved in marriage, it became a, an issue of equality. The separation of church and state was no longer a thing, and I don't know why people don't understand that yet. Another thing that I ran on is the on marijuana. I don't think that it should be a Schedule One drug, and I think that the states should have the right to decide that. And a lot of the issues that I took up, people hard right conservatives weren't very fond of, but they still supported me because on on most of the issues they agreed with me. So I think that we need to stop putting ourselves into these hyperpartisan me versus you. All, it's not one size fits all. And until we break away from that, I think that we're going to continue to have this problem. Asaya, could we talk a little bit about what voters' expectations are going to be now that they have put the Democrats in charge of the House? I mean, so are they, are they going to just basically be happy if all Nancy Pelosi or whoever ends up being the speaker is, does is stop Trump's agenda? Or are people going to expect and be disappointed if they don't see action on immigration, on DACA, on who knows, any number yeah. of Democratic priorities? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, look, that's an amazing question. I wish I had the 
the, the complete answer to that. I will say, um, and a little bit picking up on, on Morgan, where Morgan left off, I, I think that what we want, uh, what every voter and every individual wants is an acknowledgement of their basic human dignity and the ability that uh, we the ability for our leaders to be able to acknowledge our basic human dignity, whether that comes out in terms of economic, um, economic, economic opportunity, our acts, right to have make decisions about our body, a right to who we love, that's a very different set of decisions than what is the position I'm going to take on a particular trade issue, right? Um, and I do think that at this moment, we have put a lot of expectation in this new cohort of Congresswomen and Congress people of color um, and, and the incoming cohort. And they have this challenge of, you know, renovating the house while they're living in it. <laughs> because the fact is that we have a system that was never designed to work for anybody who is not a wealthy white male. And, that, and we have to acknowledge that it was wealthy white landowning males who designed our nation's government. And it worked per, works perfectly well for that cohort of people. Everybody else is not benefiting from the way government works. But in the meanwhile, we cannot dismantle the system as we're living in it. So I think that is going to be the dance that they have to play. Um, I think the Democratic majority is going to mean absolutely nothing if, by and large, people play politics as usual. If we're taking immigration as a continued political football. I mean, let's not forget that the failure uh, of Congress to pass immigration reform has preceded this, uh, preceded Donald Trump. And so we really need to see what we need, I think, what voters want is bold, authentic action from our leaders. Mm -hmm. That may not necessarily mean solving every single problem under the sun within the next two years, but I think if we're getting the runaround and if uh, our newly elected Congress members um, and if Nancy Pelosi becomes the speaker and gives the runaround. So I'll just say one last thing about this. You know, um, on election night, I believe it was, or shortly thereafter, Nancy Pelosi talked about moving forward without division. And, and the fact is that when we, people like me, immigrants, refugees, people of color, hear the, what we are calling the rhetoric in polite conversation, which is really a denial of our basic right to exist when we are being considered called animals, when our children are being caged, that is a basic denial of our human dignity. That's a, a, a place where, you know, no one can, can feel like, oh, well, you know, it's just a matter of politics as usual. So we really need our leaders to be standing up for us, um, even if every single policy is not going to get resolved in the way that we would like. And I think that remains to be seen, like how much of um, our current uh, Congress is going to play politics as usual, and how many of them are going to stand up for what they were elected to stand up for in the first place. In a bizarre twist, there was a group of Republicans who did try to solve the immigration um, problem, and, uh, and DACA. Both of the leaders, which is Jeff Dunham from California and Carlos Cabello from Miami, lost mm -hmm. this cycle. Um, it, it was terrible. We got to the floor. We got 100 and some votes. You know, it, it was politics. Not one Democrat crossed over and voted um, with my group of Republicans. We signed discharge petitions. Um, and, a, and a group of the, the people who sent discharge petitions lost as well. So I do want, I mean, it is no Republican, we should try. We did attempt to fix the immigration problem and the, and the DACA problem. We just unfortunately failed at it. But is it in part because they were overwhelmed by the president's rhetoric on the immigration issue? 
Okay, well, so, no, <laughs> I'm going to be partisan for a moment. Okay. Um, my guys went against leadership. They went against the president. They went against all, everything. They got to the floor, and it became political on the floor, and no Democrats supported them, so they fell short of, uh, of their goal. So that's what happened in, in our particular case. Well, I mean, I, oh, go let's ahead. just say this is that would be a whole conversation all in itself. I mean, I'm sure that's <laughs> it not would the, be. But yeah. yeah, I just want to acknowledge that that um, you know to, we can't get into the immigration reform issue because it's such a large um, and uh, complicated conversation. And I I don't think this is what you're saying, but that's uh, no one lost purely on the basis of their immigration vote. Um, but I do think that, and, and I, I think I tried to say this, like this, the issue of immigration reform and the broken immigration system that we have that unduly enforces, that doesn't provide humane solutions for people who have known this only this country as their home is a problem that has exceeded uh, or preceded Donald Trump and this Congress. And as someone who ran on immigration reform, I live in San Diego, mm. we're a border city, it, we're very much impacted by it. and and on border security. One thing that I don't think will ever solve the issue unless we separate border security from immigration reform. Mm -hmm. Immigration re reform is very important, but so is border security, and border security is a national security issue. There are there are so many there's so many issues that we see in, especially in San Diego with drug cartels coming in just it, while the, uh, while I was running for office we had 300 million dollars worth of cocaine on our on our oceans like on our border so that's that's something that we also need to take into a and take into account it's not an anti-immigration stance to want to secure our border well, one of the things though that I I was just fascinated and watched closely this whole year is you know I think this election was both a reaction in some ways, obviously, to a referendum on Donald Trump, but it was also an aftershock of Hillary Clinton's defeat. Mm -hmm. And it has always been a lot harder for women to get voters to trust them for executive office mm -hmm. than it is for legislative offices. Mm -hmm. And this time around, we did, of the seven Democratic pickups for governor, four of them were women. Mm -hmm. Has that barrier finally begun to fall? I don't think the barrier has fallen completely. I mean, you look to the last presidential election, and I think we see the questions uh, that were asked of, about Hillary Clinton that were not asked about her opponent in terms of her ability to do the job, um, that weren't entirely all based on gender, but sh surely gender was part of the story. Um, the Barbilly Family Foundation has done some great research on this, looking at the barriers to executive office for women. And I think this year we saw some women break through, um, but it doesn't mean they still weren't held to a different standard. And that's the thing we'll be watching, right? So did it take more. I mean, look at Stacey Abrams' race. Um, and she had definitely, you watch some of those debates, I think she was held to a different standard in terms of the credentials and qualifications that were being asked of her. Um, and the other thing is we still have a, a pipeline problem getting to executive office. So we had a record number of women on the ballot, 16, um, but it was not in nowhere near 50% um, or more of the women running for, or of the people running for governor. And we'll have nine women governors that's not even a record, <laughs> um, uh, unfortunately. Um, so we have nine women governors going into the next uh, uh, year out of 50. So I think some of those challenges still exist where we are less comfortable seeing a woman sort of stand alone in making all of the decisions uh, than we are for men. And we're also 
more comfortable seeing women make com decisions in groups, and this is what the stereotypes literature was. But I'm sure Glenda was on the ground in, in Atlanta and in Georgia, and I wonder if you, you feel like there was a higher bar for Stacey in that race. Uh, I think there's a higher bar for women and <laughs> for women of women. color yeah, yeah, in yeah, general, yeah. but I absolutely do. Um, I, you know, we talked about if you closed your eyes, uh, you know, couldn't see her, or there was not a pronoun, she'd be one of the most qualified mm -hmm. people running for. Her you know, executive office. We've seen small gains, you know, uh, as it particularly relates to black women. So for citywide executive offices in 2014, there was only one black woman serving, elected and serving as a mayor of a major top 100 city. We now have seven, right, um, from 14 to 18. So that is a steady gain in a place where there's opportunities. But as we look at these amazing women that won this cycle, as well as the, the women that are currently serving, we have to talk about pipeline work and actually in investing in, uh, in, in encouraging women to run for higher office. So if I'm going to envision a black woman in the White House, um, I have to, you know, you have to create a strategy. And that strategy is moving an amazing city council member like Ayanna Presley um, to run for higher office and now she is, you know, a, a, a con congressional member elect. So what I think that is most exciting about this cycle is that when you recruit, train, and support black um, women and black women to run for office, it's not just about the diversity in race and in gender. In this cycle, um, in the 116th Congress, we're sending five black women, and one's an educator, one's a nurse, one's a city council member, one's a state legislator, and one is a, a mother of a slain black boy. And so those, they're bringing their, their experiences, their, um, their qualifications, and their background. And when you have a diverse decision-making table, I believe those decision-making tables are gonna make better decisions. Wow, I cannot thank. We are out of time, and I cannot think of a better way to end this panel. This is so, so inspiring. And I want to thank all of you for being with us this afternoon and for, for everything that you did this cycle, because it's been a very exciting year. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.